0: Loving, loving Sairam, Dr. Stan and Sister Janie Wechler. welcome to this evening's program where the Sri Satyasai Global Council presents Awake, Unite and Inspire. Thank you for taking the time to share your personal journey with us. So, to the board of your How did you first come into contact with Sri Satya Sai Baba?
1: Well, thank you for inviting us to speak, but we would like to offer our most humble pranams at the divine lotus feet of Sri Satya Sai Baba. Thank you. Uh, Before we begin, I'd like to emphasize We had never really thought about India, Hinduism, the Vedas, nor were we consciously searching for a guru. We didn't have the blessing of having grown up in a family devoted to Sai Baba, nor had we ever given an interview with Baba during our visits to Parthi. Without this historical background, our first contact with Baba or even being aware of his existence came most unexpectedly, as Janie will now share with you.
2: I'd like to set the stage at that time and share the events of our life that were happening in 1999. My husband is a retired physician. He practiced internal medicine for 27 years. 1999 was a most challenging year for us. Stan worked long hours. He would be at the hospital at 4 a.m. making rounds, then office hours all day, return home six at night, have dinner with the family, and then be on call in the evening. I was blessed to be a full-time mom. I was caring for our 13-year-old son at the time and our home. It was a very, very busy life. We were on a um, trip skiing in Vale, and Stan, who has great stamina and was never ill, felt sick. And when we came home, he had a complete expedited workup. Stan was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer with Mets to the liver. He had surgery immediately Had a lobe of the liver removed, all the lymph nodes, and a resection of the colon, and had a very, very poor prognosis. At that time, we became vegetarian. We changed our lifestyle. Two years went by. Stan did have chemo, of course, for a year. And two years went by, and we thought everything was just great. And then in 2001, Stan had a routine examination. Five tumors were found in his lungs. And the only thing that could be offered would be trials. And he was told he would be ill with the trials and live maybe nine months. And without the trials, he would would undoubtedly pass away in two months. Uh, The surgery was offered. The surgeon said that these tumors were peripheral and could be easily removed but my husband was concerned that he had micro seeding throughout his body and he didn't want to go through the suffering and pain of lung surgery, if that were true. Well, as you can well imagine, we were completely devastated by this news. And one day I was alone in our home and I prayed my most Heartfelt prayer to my God. I've always had a strong faith, and I was begging, begging God to take me instead of Stan. And I felt he helped so many people, and his patients love him. They just adore him. And our children were doing so well. And I thought, Swami, I'm not Swami, I didn't know Swami then, but I was asking God to please, please consider taking me instead of Stan. Then I thought, well, God is a loving God. There has to be an answer to this problem somewhere on this planet. And all of a sudden, what popped into my mind was Hippocrates Health Institute. My mother had given me a book 25 years before about cancer healings that had taken place at an institute in Boston. They used an all raw diet and and wheatgrass juice. I tried to find this institute. It had burned to the ground, but one call after another led to the original staff in Puerto Rico. We went there for two weeks and learned the all raw diet. And later on, I would find out that this was the diet that Swami recommends for all of us. Um, Following uh, our return home, Uh, we continued with this raw diet for six months. And a few weeks after we came back from Puerto Rico, we decided to go to a conference given by Carolyn Mace, a medical intuitive in Philadelphia. And she could look at someone and pick up the emotional cause for an illness. And while at this conference, I picked up a book called The Holy Man and the Psychiatrist by Dr. Sandwise. And there were hundreds of books on the table, but I was led to this one book. While in our hotel room reading this book, I smelled smoke. It was so strong. I thought there's a fire in the hallway. If we open the door, the flames are gonna come pouring in. And Stan couldn't smell it. It lasted about 45 seconds and then it disappeared. I went back to reading my book and Dr. Sandweiss had just asked Swami, Baba, where does Vibhuti come from? And Swami said, there's a fire constantly burning in another dimension. Well, I knew something, something mystical was happening and and whatever it was, it, it was for Stan, but he wasn't hearing it at the time. So that was my first contact with Swami. When we returned home and walked into our house, we both smelled that smoky scent. And it was the beginning of our search to learn all we could about this
0: Saibaba. My God, that is absolutely so beautiful, inspiring, and comforting that you were guided to get this particular book. Swami was beginning to divinely orchestrate. Wonderful sharing. Thank you all so very much. So as we move on, you all, I know, have had many wonderful experiences with Bhagwan. And you've said that you've never been to Prashanti Nilayam. And that is a very unique happening. So share with us. Two of your most memorable experiences with our beloved Mother Sai.
1: Well, first of all, we hadn't been to Prashanti uh, as of the end of what Janie just presented. We've been there subsequently many times, but just to dovetail on what Janie just spoke to, uh, while at this conference. Um, we recognized that Carolyn Mace did not give any more of these interviews anymore. She mentioned, I have 2,000 people on my waiting list, 2,000 people. I'm not giving any more interviews. Well, you know, Janie doesn't take no for an answer. Her manager was in the back of the audience, and Janie approached the manager and said, Listen, my husband is a physician, he has cancer, we're not sure what the outcome is going to be. Uh, uh, could, could she please make an exception and speak with him? Give him an interview. And of course, we had no expectations that this would happen. So during, a right before a break, Carolyn Mace looked over this audience of 650 people and said, is Stan Wechler there? And of course I was in a little bit of a state of shock. Yes, meet me in the back after I leave the lectern. So I met her in the back and she said, what can I do for you? And I said, as a, as a doctor, presenting as a doctor would present, well, Carolyn, I have blah, 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 blah. I have five tumors in my lung, four on the right, one on the left. And uh, I just wanna see what you think of me. What what do you think is going on? And she did her, what she called her body scan, sort of her CAT scan. And then she looked at me in a very quizzical way. And she said, are you sure you have cancer? And I was stunned. I know I have cancer. I just looked at my CT scan two months ago. There are tumors there. I know what my blood work shows of course I have cancer. And she said to me, it has no energy. You're gonna be fine and walked away. Can you imagine being a physician, knowing what you have and somebody telling you who has no medical background, nothing to rely on, just her intuition to tell you you're gonna be okay? It made absolutely no sense. Well, that's not the end of the story. Several years later, I heard from a devotee that Carolyn Mace had some interaction with Baba along the way. This is something I wasn't even aware of. And then I went to Mr. Google and did a search and lo and behold, there's all sorts of articles online where Carolyn Mace talks about her interactions with Baba. And I had chills at that point. You know, experiences don't just occur at one point in time. It can take months and years to develop before you know the significance. And I thought to myself, my gosh, it was Baba who directed us to that conference. It was Baba who directed Janie to a particular book sitting among other books by Marianne Williamson and uh, Deepak Chopra and Larry Dossi and all the, the healers, if you will. And then Jeannie going up to the room, reading Sanwise's book, having that experience, and it was my feeling that it was through Carolyn Mace that Baba gave her that intuition to tell me I was going to be okay. In a sense, uh, it's a little different what he said about Mr. Cowan, cancer or cancer canceled, or you will be brought back to life.
0: Thank you very, very much, Brother Stan. So let's continue with two of your most memorable experiences you've had with Mother Sai. So you came into contact with Bhagwan, with Sai, through that book, Holy Man and the Psychiatrist. What unfolded after that in terms of your continued experiences with such a Sai Baba?
2: Well, two of my most memorable experiences over a period of time is Swami gave me the precious gift of my husband's life. He was given two months to live, and here he is vital, healthy, cancer-free, years later. And the other precious gift, a miracle, was the gift of our oldest son's life who had a horrible accident in 2017. Our son um, was dead for 10 minutes And life came back into his body. Our Matthew was an emergency room physician. He had just finished his residency at Stanford and he had worked just one shift at Santa Clara Hospital a week before this accident. Matt had always been an exceptional athlete. He was a skier, he rode crew in high school. He was living in Ocean Beach, California. And of course, the call of the ocean for surfing was loud and clear for this young man. Um, He was surfing one afternoon and, um, oh, before that, he always described his experience in the ocean as just bringing him such joy he felt connected to all life when he was in the water and this one afternoon um he he went into the water and and had a terrible outcome it was late at night on october 17th stan and i had gone to bed and we received a phone call from our youngest son Dane, and he said dad, there's been a terrible accident. Matt's in the emergency room. And I said, is Matt alive? And he said, yes, but he's had a spinal cord injury. He's completely paralyzed from the neck down. He's a quadriplegic. And my first thought is, well, we have to find the best surgeon. We just have to find the best surgeon. And Dane said, mom, dad, there's no time. He's going into the operating room in the next 30 minutes so what happened was matt had been floating on the ocean he had this accident where his body was thrown into a sandbar and his last memory was floating in the ocean he was paralyzed and he opened his mouth and screamed into the ocean for help and they're just first miracle there just happened to be a surfer standing on the shore there's large man from Australia who saw something. He thought it was a garbage bag. He went out there and he saw it was a body. Well, our son is six foot four and he was 230 pounds of dead weight. This man had the strength to take that body and pull it to shore. Second miracle, there just happened to be a Stanford trained nurse standing on the shore, ready to give him CPR. Third miracle, there was a doctor do you want to tell this part? Yeah,
1: there was there was a doctor who had just finished a shift in the hospital, and something told him to go down to the ocean. It was a rainy, nasty day, and after he finished surfing, walking back, he heard the screams from this nurse and other people: "Help! Help!" And he came down, and he helped resuscitate Matthew. Matthew, he's according to Ryan. He thought he was dead for over 10 minutes. He was absolutely ashen gray, wasn't breathing, didn't have a pulse. The paramedics were called, and by time EMT arrived after they're working on him, they finally got a pulse and he was taken to the hospital. Now, what's interesting is, Matthew happened to be surfing that day with a friend of his who was also, uh, a classmate of my son at Brown University.
2: Our youngest son. Our youngest
1: Jane. son. And remember, Matthew's on the beach, no identification. Had he been taken to the hospital without anybody knowing who he was, he would have been, could have been a Jane Doe, as they say. So as soon as Matthew was whisked off to the hospital, and as long as Dane's friend who was with Matthew called Dane, and Dane called up another ex-classmate from Brown, who was a psychiatry resident at UCSF, who never answers his pager when he's sitting in a conference, had the feeling he had to pick up his pager. Dane told him the story, and this guy ran to the emergency room and said, please take care of Matthew. He's one of us. He's a physician. The next miracle that occurred was Matthew was operated on by a doctor within four hours. It turns out this doctor wasn't even on the staff. He's not even listed as a staff member of the hospital. And Matthew came out of surgery. And the additional miracle is he is the first person out of animal trials to benefit from a technique of monitoring spinal, co- uh, spinal cord blood flow to keep the pressure up that really saved his life. And now it's part of the standard of care. Interesting thing is the research had been done on kangaroos and a little side humor by Swami. When Matthew was in medical school, he won an Ironman triathlon and he was in the kangaroo class. (laughs) So the miracles go on and on. And because Matthew had worked just one shift in, a, in the hospital before this accident, and the insurance company wasn't going to pay for a lesser uh, physical therapy facility in San Francisco. The CEO of the hospital intervened with the insurance company and said, He's one of ours. We insist he come to this state of the art facility 45 miles away. And these are just, these are truly miracles and memorable experiences that dovetail basically with our experience, with the many miracles that we, um, we experienced.
2: I'd like to continue with uh, what Matt shared with us going through this experience. Uh, when we first saw him in the intensive care unit, um, he was a quadriplegic. He had so many wires and monitors, it's every parent's worst nightmare. His sensation was his body was on fire, and he described the feeling in his chest as though a heavy truck were resting on his chest. He could only be touched on the top of his head or his shoulder. Yet he smiled. He was so happy. He was so happy, and he was surrounded by friends and colleagues. And a couple weeks later, while he was uh, in physical therapy in this hospital, he said, Mom. The happiest time in my entire life was when i was in intensive care i said why is that sweetheart he said i was in a state of bliss he said it doesn't matter what happens to my body i see everyone connected in a web of love and i am in the center and even now he said i don't care what happens to my body i am so happy And he was such an inspiration to everyone who came into the room, uh, the nurses, the doctors, the other patients. He was the one who would work so hard uh, in uh, physical therapy. He was the one that would take the excruciating pain and force himself to try to walk. And about halfway through physical therapy, he said, mom, I'm going to walk out of here. Well, they told us he might not walk for seven or eight months they didn't know how much of his body he would get back that young man walked out of the hospital on crutches 10 weeks later now he still had a long way to go but he was determined and if you saw him now you'd never know anything ever happened to him another big miracle when you are without oxygen for four minutes the brain is gone the boy would have been in a vegetative state his iq is higher than it was before and he was pretty darn smart to begin with so these are the most incredible uh, miracles that, uh, that have happened to us. We, we've been the recipient of Baba's endless love and grace showered upon us. And while Stan and I were going through this awful experience with our child, we didn't feel anything. We had equanimity. There were no highs, there were no lows. We were just in the moment, full of love, celebrating every little accomplishment. But with
1: equanimity, such a precious gift, such a precious gift he gave us. And, and one thing we've often uh, wondered, why, why would Matthew receive Baba's grace? Why would he be um, uh, so, why would he have been saved? Well, you know. Back when Matthew had graduated school and he was searching for what he ultimately wanted to do, he did some seva in India. And uh, while he was there, unbeknownst to us, he actually went to the ashram for a week. One of our devotees from Pittsburgh was there and said, Matthew, come stay with us. And Matthew said, no, I'm going to stay in the shed. And Matthew stayed there for a week receiving Baba's darshan for that period of time. And it turns out that we found out by some other incredible experience that the doctor who was in charge of the program was a side devotee. And in her office, there were all the pictures of Swami. And he even said, I've never met anyone like this in my life. And I have more talent in my little finger there are many of these people that I'm helping to serve, and I've got to make good use of my time. And that prompted him to want to apply to medical school without having any interest in medicine as an art and philosophy major.
2: He was volunteering in the slums in New Delhi with, with children who had dropped out of school, and then also with... Uh, the women who were in poverty, he helped with microfinancing. And that was the time, as Stan said, that he had the epiphany, that, that he had the opportunity. He could go to medical school, even though he said, I'll never work as hard as dad. I'll never work as hard as
0: dad. <laughs> this, is, this is really, really mind-boggling. It is so touching and inspiring. And so much of Swami's compassion and grace showered on you all in such a profound way. It It's it's so, so touching. It, it brings tears to our eyes just to, to hear you relate that love and compassion of Mother Sai. But Brother Stan and Sister Janie, I want to go back to the time when you first saw the book. Samuel Sanvices's book that was your first initial contact with Satya Sai Baba how then did you progress from there to believe in him as god in human form what transpired
2: well when i when i read San, dr sanvices's book and then i read other books i I read that Swami would cancer cancel just or cancel cancer. He would just wave his hand, and I thought, okay, Swami's calling us. We have to go to India. Must get Stan to India. Well, we had been led to the Pittsburgh Sci Center, and the president of the Sci Center, who is a cardiologist, said, "No, no, no, no. That's not how Swami always works. He works through the doctors." And he suggested that we have the surgery, have these tumors removed, and then go. And that's what we did. So the diagnosis was in February, the surgery was in May, and our first trip to Party was in August. Now, while Stan was in the hospital, I had given him a tape that I purchased at a Hallmark store. It was the Paca-Bella Canon in D with the sound of the ocean in the background. And Stan would listen to this through the healing process. Well, here we are at the ashram. It's our first darshan. We have jet lag. We're overwhelmed with culture shock and the noise and the smells and the colors and we're tired. And Swami comes out. And my first thought is... Oh my goodness you don't even know that we're here and I've dragged my husband and my son to the other side of the world here and you don't even know we're here and then all of a sudden the Pocabella Canon and D played with the sounds of the ocean the Hallmark rendition Swami played for us
1: anyway
2: and and Stan and Dane said, oh my goodness, that's the tape mommy got for daddy. <laughs> and and I turned to my, my uh, side from the friends family from Pittsburgh and I said, "Have you, you've been here before. Have you ever heard music like that? No, 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 it's always Indian music. And we asked people at the ashram, no, no, no. Classical music's never played let alone with the sound of the ocean. So at that moment, Stan and I and my son all knew this, this person is God. He's God. And we were committed.
1: But, but there's something else that happened. Later that day, if that wasn't enough, I went to the Western Canteen. And before I tell you this part of the story, when I was first diagnosed with the terminal cancer and I had my surgery, Janie set me up to go to the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center for a new program, an integrative medicine program run by a Native American healer physician who actually graduated from Stanford at the age of 21. His name is Louis Mel Madrona. And I spent a week there, it was sort of a vision quest. And we went through all sorts of holistic things, behavioral modification, diet, um, herbs, meditation, uh, psychological work. Lewis would put me in trance and tell me all these uh, stories. And um, um, so here I am having dinner at the ashram. ashram. All, you know, obviously 99% of the people were Indian, talking all these languages. I had no idea what was going on. And off in a corner, there was a, a man, a Westerner, just sitting there very quietly. And I went over there and sat down. And you know, you're supposed to practice silence, but that's not in my vocabulary. So <laughs> he, he said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, it's a long story. And he said, well, tell me. So we related a lot of the story to him and we spoke about our time in Pittsburgh with Louis Mel Madrona. And he sat there and sort of shook his head and said, I know Louis. You know, Lewis, 1.4 billion people in India. I'm halfway across the world. Nobody in Pittsburgh really knew of, of Lewis. This is not a very, even people at the university just had really very little to do with him because it was, you know, integrative medicine. That's that's not our thing. And I said, how in the world do you know Lewis? He said, I designed the program that you went to. <laughs> I'm a pediatrician, emergency medicine pediatrician. Then I went on to consulting integrative medicine practices. And I knew Lois very well. We've gone to sweat lodges. I've been to Pittsburgh back and forth several years before you became involved. This is how I also knew Swami was here. Who else could have directed this drama to put me in front of my first experience with really intensive healing under the guise, uh, under the direction of uh, somebody who's a side devotee. That was absolutely mind boggling. Oh
0: my God. It keeps it, getting better and better as the interview progresses. It is so amazing to see how Swami orchestrates every single movement and experience in our lives. And he says, you know, he once said that the grace that I have bestowed upon you, that you may be aware of in a few instances. He says there are hundreds that I bestow upon you that you're not even aware of. Such is the love and compassion of Mother Sai, So, so beautiful, Brother Stan and Sister Janie. So it leads us to the next question. You've had such wonderful experiences. You've experienced the love of a thousand mothers, this ocean of compassion in Mother Sai. What does Sai Baba mean to you all today? Well,
2: Sai is my life's breath. I know having surrendered to him he takes care of everything in my life i have no worries i've experienced his grace and his unconditional love and i feel great peace i feel he's always with me i feel his presence above me below me all around me i know that i am the clay and he is the potter There are two devotees, April and Audrey Bailey, and they write beautiful music for Swami, and they had the opportunity to perform for him in the ashram. And there's one particular song they did that always touches my heart, and it captures how I feel, and I'd like to share those lyrics with you. I am never alone you and I are never apart for my heart is your home you live inside my heart baba you are my very breath no one could ever love me like sigh yes lord you are my everything you are my life
0: i i I'm moved beyond words. It is, it is so touching, so beautiful. Brother San, you wanted to say, share something?
1: Well, yes. I think the common theme is that Mother Sai is omniscient, omnipotent, uh, omnipresent. He's proclaimed nothing happens without his will. He has orchestrated the events in my life, well before knowing of his existence so that we would be ready to hear his calling. At the time of those events, we weren't even aware of how they would fit into the bigger picture, just as actors on his stage don't realize the significance of the moment. Those things which appear to be bad are really good for it is necessary for us to undergo these challenges, for us to have a total transformation. And that's what I feel has happened with us. And one small little vignette I'd like to share that when I was diagnosed, my doctor sat there in 1999 and held my hand right after he told me the news which was really very, very bad news, but I, I didn't see it that way at that time. And he said, you know, I've seen one other person in my practice of these 20 some odd years who had exactly what you have, who survived five years, one other person. And I latched on to that and that became the mantra Well, how does Swami fit into the picture? I kept going back for examinations every three to five years, and I kept reminding him of that story and thanking him. Finally, 18 years later, I mentioned that story again, and he looked at me and said, I never told you that. I said, what do you mean? I was sitting there, you were standing there, and you told me you had never seen a patient No, I've never had a patient in my practice who lived more than five years. And it's at that moment I realized, you know how Swami comes in the form of other people? Again, chills. It was Swami who must have been there in the person of Al Barbadi who said, don't worry, if you believe you can be that one person, who will survive, I will be with you.
0: Brother San, that is that is so beautiful. And while you and Sister Janie was sharing, it brings back to mind the beautiful, compassionate saying of Swami when he says, bring me the depths of your mind, no matter how grotesque, how cruelly ravaged by doubts or disappointments, I know how to treat them for I am your mother and I will never, never let you go. Take one step towards me, I shall take ten towards you. Shed one tear in my name and I will wipe a hundred from your eyes. Such is the love of Mother Sai. Thank you so much for sharing. So, Brother Stan and Sister Janie, let's go back to your first Prashanti Niliam visit. How many trips have you made subsequently? And share with us, what is it like to be living with God, in God, for God at Prashanti Niliam? What is that ashram experience like?
1: Well, uh, basically, You know, beforehand, we had, as many people do, accumulated a lot of things. You know, we lived in a big home. We had all the comforts of home. And the experience of living in the ashram, the first inclination in the mind was, oh, my gosh, we have this small room. We've got a little desk. We've got a hard bed. We've got monkeys at the window. We've got a mouse coming through the plumbing. Oh, my gosh, how are we ever going to tolerate this? And, and as silly as that sounds, the, the, uh, the truth is, after days went by, where we've lost this whole ceiling of desires, it just m- diminished. We were engrossed in the activities of the ashram, and I was d- doing medical seva at the general hospital. Our surroundings meant nothing to us and we were able to live with less. So it was a learning experience. And while I was there, I think it's important to note that here I am coming in for the first time doing Medical Saver with all you know, the high-tech thinking in my mind and I walked into the exam room with my mentor, Dr. Patel, and there's Dr. Patel seeing a patient and I'm seeing a patient and there's an interpreter there who was more like a doctor, but, um, and I'm saying, well, I think this patient needs this, this, this. He said, no, no, no. It's the love that heals. You give them a little of a shot of vitamins, something to clean out their worms, and they're gonna be happy. And I'm thinking to myself, my gosh, if I ever did that in my office, nobody's <laughs> gonna be happy. I'm gonna end up in court. And the truth of the matter is, by just giving people time and your full attention without all these other things that we need to worry about in western medicine these people were happy you know they were bending down kissing my feet i had never experienced anything like that before and i felt that i hadn't really done anything but i guess it was just sharing sharing love which was the most important message of my times doing medical seva in party.
0: So Brother Stein, it's connecting me and that is so beautiful that you can see the love of Swami as the greatest medication more than any medicine. It is the love. So as a doctor who has practiced internal medicine for so many years, you would have also read listened or studied Swami's messages on how doctors should practice medicine in the truest sincerest way. What has been your experience as a doctor against the background of Swami's teachings? How has it impacted the practice in your life as a medical doctor?
1: Well, before I retired, honestly, uh, and I retired in 2001, uh, Swami was unknown to me. But I, I picked up the book, psychology, medicine, And I began to realize that 80% of medicine, of illness, is related to disorders of the mind. And one of the key elements of that is failure to limit our desires. So what we do is we eat bad food. That's not good for us. We listen to bad stuff. We we don't exercise. We just uh, indulge ourselves in activities. Uh, People just want pills to take care of their maladies. So from that point on realizing this, it was basically an epiphany. And from there we, we did two things that I wasn't prepared to talk about, but was so inspirational. We started a pilot program for cancer patients where for five days we incorporated all the teachings of Swami without in our, nec- home. In our home, without necessarily invoking his name with multiple other practitioners using evidence-based medicine to show that holistic medicine, living in the moment, practicing mindfulness, um, learning how to relax, all the teachings of Swami, we would not have started that program without our or my experience, learning how Swami treats illness.
2: And what came out of that program unexpectedly was there was a psychiatrist who uh, gave the introduction uh, welcoming everyone to the program. And he asked if he could stay and observe because he had done a lot of group work. At the end of the five days, he stayed for four of the five days observing. And he said he had never experienced a group dynamic like that. There was so much love. And there were two miracles that came out of that. An inoperable lung tumor with one lady, her tumor disappeared two weeks after the program, and someone with breast cancer, their tumor disappeared. It was all Swami, all Swami, and the one lady with the tumor in the lung smelled vibhuti when she came into the house, and of course, I had to give her many books and packets of vibhuti. <laughs> and,
1: and of course, our purpose was not to cure in a medical sense, and this, of course, was a gift by Swami, it was to help people get on with their lives, having such poor prognoses. And at the end of the week, we could see their body language change, and they were essentially happy, because what they did is they adopted a community, which we hadn't even realized going into the program. That was the most important thing for them to have the support and for them to have people who would listen to them as their oncologists and doctors never really had a chance to do. So that was a learning experience for us. So it's not what we did, it was what we learned. And another interesting story is I had even retired, but somewhere in our hospital leadership, they knew that we knew something about holistic medicine. And I was asked to be the medical director of the Dean Ornish program, which is the heart reversal program uh, by teaching diet, exercise, meditation, basically group therapy, mindfulness, uh, because Dean Ornish had a guru, uh, Sri, Sachidananda, I can't say it right, uh, who may have met Swami somewhere in his travels. So Dean, in his journey, was similar to mine, had undergone some difficulties, dropped out for a few years, learned a lifestyle, and incorporated that into a heart reversal program. And I was chosen to do this program, and I witnessed two people who by just throwing away their medicine and following basically Swami's program were able to uh, convert their class 4 cardiac disease to a normal healthy life.
0: Wow. Really, really beautiful and inspiring sharing. But Sister Jeannie, I want to come back to your son and the accident that took place while he was at sea and then the miracles that happened. But as parents and especially as a mother, you know, the attachment, the love that we have for children, especially the mother's love, it's manifested much more differently than a father. And you mentioned that in spite of Those life-threatening situations, you were able, both of you all, to maintain that state of equanimity. Now, for a mother in everyday life, that is basically humanly impossible because of the the attachment and the love uh, that mothers have for their children. And when you spoke about equanimity, it brought back to memory one of Swami's teachings on equanimity where he says, Let the wave of memory, the storm of desire, and the fire of emotion pass through your system without affecting your equanimity. So share with us what was it like when you describe being equanimic in the face of that very big challenge and calamity with your son?
2: When we first got the phone call, I, I felt that wave of emotion and pain. And I turned to my husband who had equanimity. He had equanimity right from the beginning. And, and uh, th- through him, I was able to uh, get balance at that that evening. But when we arrived there in the intensive care unit the next day, and I wasn't able to hold my son, I couldn't even touch him except the top of his head. That is, that is when I was able to step back and say, Swami, he's yours, he's yours, he's yours. And, and just allowed Swami's love to come through me to him. I let him. I, He, he wasn't mine. He, he, he was my son, but he wasn't mine. He came through me. He was Swami's. So with that attitude, we would just take each day as it would come, and Swami would pepper the days with his humor and his leelas. And There was, there was no pain. We were, we were, I was the observer. Stan felt this as well too. Several weeks into this, I said, am I in a state of shock? I don't feel anything. Is there something wrong with me? The old me would be crying. I'd be miserable. I'd be frightened. I'd be devastated. And he said, no, I feel the same way. I feel nothing where the observers were passing through this. Swami has given us his grace. That's what it was like. There was no pain. There was just joy and celebrating every little accomplishment as it would happen. And I forgot to share with you, our son was an artist before this accident that was his major in college Uh, we were so happy he decided to go to medical school instead of paint for a living but that became his therapy as he was healing and eventually these paintings sold for thousands of dollars which gave him income afterwards another miracle Uh, So we we were involved with getting the painting supplies and the canvases and watching him progress and and seeing how he expressed himself using rubber gloves and tubes and everything that was being used on him, he would use on the canvas to paint and and that was a joy. So there were so many happy, wonderful things that were happening through this horrible tragedy. So what we felt was the joy. We felt joy and peace. There was no anguish.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Sister Janie. And it is really, really so touching and inspiring to see the hand of Swami in your lives even before you became consciously aware of it. And the next question deals with impact and transformation in one's life. And many of us have had what you call a pre sigh and a post sigh We've had a particular lifestyle before when we come into contact with Swami that has gone through or goes through a period of transformation where we begin the seatings differently, our vision, our perspectives, our priorities change. Can you all share one or two life lessons of that transformation from when you came into contact with Swami?
2: I want to start by answering that question. When we were in the ashram the first time and I saw everyone giving letters to Swami, and everybody wanted the interview. And this is when Stan had just had the surgery with the tumors in the lungs. And I remember looking at Swami and thinking, I don't want to bother you with a letter. You have so many, so many letters here that you need to read. I am just so happy to be here with you and i know you're you're with me i know i know you're with me i don't need an interview please call other people take others letters I, I don't need this so how i transformed from that experience i brought home with me i didn't have attachment to his form i was so thrilled to have seen him of course in the and the several times that we did go back to the ashram but I did not feel that devastation when Swami left his form. I didn't feel any different because Swami was inside me, above me, below me, all around me. I knew that he would never leave me. So that was transformative for me. And and I saw many people always going to party all the time, wanting to be in his presence. And yes, we wanted to go to party, but we didn't have we didn't feel that need to be with the form because we felt him all around us and everything we saw and in people we saw swami so that was transformative but also um before swami i always felt i had to solve my own problems i'd have ups i'd have downs i i i needed to i wanted to control things if you would please (laughs) and I realized that I don't need to control. I am not the director of this drama, I'm just the actor on the stage. And as soon as I let go of trying to be the director, my life was much happier and easier for me. And it was easier for me to be a witness and not get into the eye of the storm. And I also had the audacity to think that I could solve other people's problems for them. So I wasn't the best listener. I would hear what they were saying, but I was already, already thinking about how I could tell them what to do that would fix their problem. So, oh, such a tremendous ego. <laughs> and that changed. I know, I know nothing, I know nothing. And if I can just hold that presence of love, and and let swami do what he does through people to help heal their challenges and solve their their problems and their illness i just want to hold that that space of love for them as they pass through what they're passing through so a big change for me my ego (laughs) was squashed Um, so just in general, I changed. I changed completely. My desires were less. We have simplified our lives. We live in the mountains. Our greatest joy is, is loving service and, and being in silence on the mountaintops and, and hiking in the forests and just being in that silence where we can hear the voice of our Swami.
0: That is so beautiful, uh, Sister Janie, and Brother Stan. You want to share a little bit of your transformation along the way?
1: I I think what what Janie just said is really what we learned. I I really learned to just be, you know. Is, is in her introductory remarks, you know, Janie talked about. My busy lifestyle, getting up at 4.30 in the morning, going to the hospital, coming home, making calls, working extra days to make sure we had enough income, and it goes on and on and on. And I don't think I was actually living in the moment, just being. So when we moved to the mountains that Janie just alluded to, our people back home said, well, what are you going to do? I said, we're going to get up in the morning and we're just going to be, we're going to sit on our deck, and we're going to talk, and we're going to, you know, meditate, and just exercise, and go out in nature, do, when, when you're walking in nature, that's basically a walking meditation, you're, you're dealing with your breath, and we're talking about good hikes, and the time goes by, just like in meditation, so while some people sit in that lotus position which I can't do because of arthritis that's terribly uncomfortable but walking it's so freeing your mind is empty it's void of stuff so just being uh, was was the greatest gift Swami could give to me and also this ties in with as Janie said getting involved with loving service you know it Uh, Several years ago, I went to the International Medical Conference uh, in Anaheim, and I thought I was going to a medical conference where side doctors would be talking about what they did and, you know, specific procedures and uh, more technical stuff. And all I heard for two days was how doing the service transformed them, how they got just as much out of it as the patience, the sense of, of gratitude. And, you know, I, I left that saying, wow, what, what can we do better? So when we came to North Carolina, we felt we need, to, we need to give a little bit more. We'd always done Seva, but now, you know, Swami set the bar higher. Now there were no excuses not to do Seva in this stage of our life. So one of the things that I think you alluded to was the Meals on Wheels uh, initiative. Now Meals on Wheels is nothing new. It's done everywhere, all over the country. But what's interesting about this, Jeannie and I are here in the mountains of of Western Carolina and we're dealing with all these shut-ins. And I just like to share a little vignette when Janie was visiting people, she wasn't just dropping off the food, she was interacting with them, she was connecting with them. And she came upon this 90 year old lady who had a little dementia who said to Janie one day, I feel a little dizzy. And, you know, Janie felt she needed to look into this a little more deeply. So she said, I feel my heart's going fast. So Janie called me up. I was at home. She said, what do I do? I said, Janie, take her pulse. I told Janie exactly what to do. And I said, now beat out exactly what you're feeling. And Janie mimicked what she was feeling over the phone. I made a diagnosis of rapid atrial fibrillation. I said, call the paramedics.
2: And she ended up having several stents put in her part. So here we think we're going to just deliver food. No, expect the unexpected.
1: So Swami puts that in front of us right before we moved. There was another fellow, Michael, which is a more incredible story. We had something that had to be done right before we moved. And he called me up that morning and said, I can't make it. I had a little pain in my back. And intuitively, I just said to him, well, what do you mean by a pain in your back? oh, I've got this pain in my back and it's going down my arms and I'm sweating and I feel sick to my stomach. I said, Michael, I think you're having a heart attack. No, no, no. I haven't seen a doctor for 40 years. Uh, my wife's at work. I'm not going to any doctors. I said, Michael, I'm calling up a doctor friend of mine who's a side devotee who does cardiology at Prashanti as Seva. Um, you're going to see him. And if... You won't take yourself. I'm coming to your house to pick you up. He said, no, no, that's okay. He hung up the phone, didn't hear from him all day. At 6.30 in the morning, the phone rings. Stan? Yes. Is Brahm Sharma. I said, yes, Brahm. You saved his life. I said, what do you mean I saved his life? He came to the hospital. We tried to put in, we, we did an angiogram. We tried to put in stints. He was so far gone, we had to open him up. We put in five bypass grafts. He had what they call a widow maker. He would have died had he not come to the hospital. So Swami being omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent, put us, put me as his servant in a place and time that basically could do his will.
0: And Brother Stan and Sister Janie, let's talk a little bit more about this Meals on Wheels. So how many days a week do you all render this service? How much miles do you cover? How many people do you serve? Tell me a little bit more about the details of this seva. Well, it's about
2: a, 20 mile area we cover in the mountains um we visit about 10 10 households um it takes about an hour and a half to do uh we were looking for something a server save a project we could do through COVID, and we felt that this would be safe for us Um, at our age um And and we have just found that it's been so much more than delivering food. A lot of people are lonely, and it gives us an opportunity to chat with them. Um, and the, this one lady that we had talked about before lived by herself, and she always wanted to hug me. And I I wanted to so much, but with COVID, I didn't. And and finally, after my vaccines, I said, Chanel, come here. I'm gonna give you a big hug. And she would say, I love you, honey. And I would say, I love you too. So it wasn't about food. It's not about food. It's about the love that we can share with people who were stuck at home through
1: COVID. And, and this was basically an unmet need because we found out to our dismay that no one had delivered food to them for 10 years. So we just happened to be uh, Swami's messengers, and just by chance, and because nobody visited these people through the day, we were their only contact
0: with some
1: semblance of humanity, which, which I found interesting as we went along. That wasn't our intention, but that's what we learned. And,
2: and it gives it, us such pleasure. It gives us such joy.
0: This is, this is really, really amazing. It is so inspiring and soulful, touching so many lives in so many different ways. And you, as you so rightly said, it is not so much the sharing of the food, but the sharing of Swami's love. And that is the greatest medication. So, Brother Stan and Sister Janie, as we come to the end of this wonderful divine interview that has been so inspiring and soulful and sincere, can you share, and I want you to intertwine this question with another one that i'm going to pose to you swami says the best way to transform the world is to transform the self so share a little bit about what advice or recommendation or guidelines that you can give to the general public out there people who would be looking at this interview what can i do to make the world a better place And can we intertwine it with some of your or some of the teachings of Swami? And they're so beautiful teachings, but maybe you can share one or two that really resonates with both of you all. Well, I think to create a
2: better society, it begins with the individual with the practice of the five human values of love, truth, peace, right action, nonviolence. And as you can tell from the stories, some of the stories we've shared with you, life presents opportunities every day where we can help one another and express our love. And we have to say yes to those opportunities. So not only are we helping the person that we're serving, it, it comes back to us multiplied. It, it gives us joy. It gives us pleasure. Uh, and other people observe what we're doing, and they get inspired. So it's the domino effect. It's... It, mm-hmm. And, and, and Swami says that um, when, when you are, um, if there's righteousness in the heart, there'll be beauty in the character. And if there's beauty in the character, there will be harmony in the home. When there's harmony in the home, there'll be order in the nation. When there's order in the nation, there will be peace in the world. And I think all of us want peace in the world. And it starts right where we stand right where we stand to help our fellow man
1: and i think you know swami has said you know i have all the devotees i need in you know if you ponder this thought well if he has all the devotees he needs how is his mission is going to be how is his mission going to be served unless more and more people become involved so one of the things we've thought about in any of our service projects, especially uh, one grand service project that we have basically on the drawing board is called the Elida Project, which the people in our region are very much aware of, is how to draw in people from the community to loving service. So they in turn can go out perhaps be inspired by Swami's teachings and continue his seva. So we are the instruments, we are the messengers, and, and that's what basically draws us into, uh, into Swami even more.
0: Brother Stan and Sister Janie Welcher, on behalf of the Sri Satyasai Sai Global Council, West Indies, we want to express gratitude and appreciation to you and to Mother Sai for taking the time to share your personal journey and your perspectives with us. May Bhagwan Sri Satyasai Sai Baba continue to bless and guide you all And may you continue to be loving instruments in his divine mission. Jai Sairam. Thank you.
2: Jai Sairam. Jai Sairam.